This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Worf gets a backstory. Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show that will die an honorable, glorious death in battle. Excellent. I'm Skep when I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week, it is, um, I, it's a weird one for me, because I think of this as the first appearance of the Klingons, because that's the order in which I encountered Star Trek, mm-hmm. even though these <laughs> Klingons, like, like, obviously Klingons showed up really early original series etc mm-hmm. yeah it's a sort of errand of mercy even these more modern klingons showed up in the movie like they were created yep. specifically for star trek the motion picture so having my memory of like this is the first time you encounter klingons is like this is the first tng klingons even though warf has been here so like it's yes. all just confused <laughs> in my mind uh, this is, you know, like, you know, OG Klingons, but not, but it's also the first time in this, but also in your head, but not in the total of Star Trek. And yeah, there's wires crossed everywhere. I understand. Yeah. I mean, we'll get into it, but this is definitely when we have the first TNG version Klingons, which is the Klingons after the events of of um, Undiscovered Country where they have sort of a central conflict of being. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is peacetime Klingons, which is an interesting concept that they that they keep exploring in in next gen. Yes, uh, it's you know a you know it, it's 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 this is the, the the initial grounding of our view of Klingons during this era that will last all the way through uh, the the DS Nine era, uh, and I suppose uh, uh, a bit beyond uh, with uh, lower decks. Yeah. So this is going to be a fairly quick intro because uh, this is Heart of Glory, the Klingon mm-hmm. episode, the first Klingon episode. Um, it, it interestingly solidifies a lot of TNG Klingon culture that sticks around. It's not one of yeah. those like the Ferengi and then we don't see them again mm-hmm. for ages and then they're completely different. <laughs> Which, you know, uh, maybe there was some shenanigans going on early Ferengi, and this is now the actual legit Ferengi. Now, the Klingons are going to be uh, fairly consistent, uh, right down to the sort of divisions in their culture and their uh, sort of coming to terms with, you know, I guess, living in the century. So, this was written by Herbert Wright and DC Fontana. Um, the reason that we're covering this quickly is because we've heard of both of them before. DC Fontana, mm-hmm. we've talked about a dozen times because she has just been one of the core Star Trek writers since the beginning. Indeed. And then, of course, we talked about Herbert Wright recently because he's the father of the Frangie. Mm hmm. Wrote the Frangie episodes. <laughs> Uh, I also believe uh, Maurice Hurley did the teleplay uh, specifically, uh, so there's like also some stuff you know coming in from that uh, end of things as well. Yeah, and he there was a weird quote that I couldn't quite figure out. So Maurice Hurley said that Heart of Glory was the closest experience he had to the show to directly place his own personal philosophy into a script, which like is your own personal philosophy to die gloriously for the empire what is what does that mean (laughs) for the glory of the empire but you don't live in an empire i don't care (laughs) 
But yeah, so uh, yeah, they, they, you know, Maurice has uh, been a writer we've also mentioned previously. So, <laughs> all right, so guest stars, we've only got a handful because it's a bottle mm-hmm. episode. We've yes, got and, uh, one of them dies. Yes, very early. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like oh, okay, you just kind of lay there. Right? <laughs> got Van Armstrong playing chorus. He is one of the best-known Star Trek guest stars. This is his first appearance, mm-hmm. but he goes on to play 12 different characters across four series. Yes, uh, you know, I guess most notably being uh, 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 Maxwell uh, Forrest in uh, Enterprise, um, but yeah, also uh, showing... Yes. <laughs> Our Admiral! It's Forrest. All right, well, do we have any others? No! <laughs> but uh, also like a whole bunch of uh, folks in uh, uh, Voyager, like in the... Uh, uh, you know, from early on all the way to like the last episode, he he played Korath, the Klingon, in the last episode. <laughs> yeah, he was like Cor- he was another Klingon. He's like one of the Vidians because you can't see who's who under all that makeup. He also plays yes. like four other aliens in Enterprise in heavy makeup. Mm-hmm. It's just everywhere. Uh, Alpha Herogen Telic uh, Remor, uh, who I believe is a, uh, a Romulan. Uh, and Lancer, also known as Two of Nine. Um, and he had a few roles in uh, Deep Space Nine as well. Yep. Uh, outside of this, he also was in other sci-fi-related TV shows, like everyone who was ever in Star Trek was. Uh, the one that I found just funny was he once played Fred Trump in an episode of Quantum Leap. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> That's awkward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder what he was up to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now we have uh, Charles Heyman playing Conmel. The Klingon name's just so weird. He was on a lot of guest roles in the 80s, like on A-Team and Dukes of Hazard, etc. He was also on several uh, TV miniseries and commercials and other things in the 80s, 90s era. Yeah, and uh, last acting role, uh, Lucy Knows Love. I've never heard of that in 2013. Doesn't sound, that sounds weird. I don't want to look that up. I don't know what's going to pop up from that. It's like, is this like a weird I Love Lucy spinoff? <laughs> David Foreman is playing Kanira. I freaking hate apostrophe names, man. Kanira. Something like that. Uh, sure. <laughs> He's best known for a reoccurring role on Matlock as Lieutenant Bob Brooks. Uh, he hey, was already there. a well-known TV actor by the time he was in Star Trek on things like Hill Street Blues, uh, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, things like that. <laughs> yeah, I believe this is his uh, only Star Trek role, but he was in Generations, the TV series. <laughs> what, was, what is that? What is that? Why am I, why am I blanking on whatever the heck that is? Uh, it was 1990-ish. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I I only notice it because I it's like Star Trek Next Generation, Star Trek Generations, Generations the TV show. This is nothing to do with Star Trek other than actors that are shared over sometimes. All right. Then also Robert Bauer plays Kunivas. Not sure if they say his name in this episode. Kun- <laughs> Kunivas. Anyway, that guy. He's dead. He's dead the yes. entire episode. <laughs> um, but despite needing to only play a dead body, he's got a lot of tv credits from the 80s he's also a professional drummer and he appeared in the uh spinal tap movie oh nice 
Uh, it's also a uh, bit of a producer. Uh, uh, things like Scotch and Milk, Nosebleed, uh, Short, uh, Baby, 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 <laughs> uh, and uh, Dinner with Dawn. It's the sequel okay, to My Dinner with Andre. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Oh, he's also on. Uh, was a uh, played Hook on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Hook, I don't. Yes, Hook. I've watched all of Sabrina the Teenage Witch twice. I don't remember a character named Hook, but okay. Uh, Sabrina and the Pirates. I didn't. Yeah, what? See, okay, never mind. I'll fight. I'll figure it out later. <laughs> Maybe it's one of those uh, episodes that was just so like head scratcher they just blocked it out of your memory. I don't remember pirates. I mean, I was a big, I was big into Sabrina. I've watched the whole series like two times. Hmm. I don't, do not remember pirates for the life of right. me. <laughs> anyway, do we have pirates in this episode? Don't think so. I mean, sort of. I guess it depends how you define the Klingons in this. Like, one, one could define them as such. Yes. Well, it depends on your definition of pirates. Well, they at least claim that there's pirates. Hmm. I mean, they're kind of like, in this, they're terrorists. Yeah. <laughs> but depending on who you talked to during the, you know, golden age of piracy, they were just terrorists. They're what we would call terrorists now. Yeah, they're just sinking our ships, killing our people. Like, they're raiding our dudes. What's going on? Yeah. Some of them did it after they were supposed to, you know. That's that's when you hit the piracy part instead of the privateer part. That's the, that's the yes. distinction. Like, oh, all right, so they're taking our stuff, but leave us live. Hooray, privateers. If they, Oh, they murdered us. Piracy. <laughs> no, it was more, you have a mandate from the King of England to take out Spanish shipping lanes. Then England and Spain reach a peace deal, and they go, hey, stop taking out Spanish shipping lanes. <laughs> they go, are you crazy? I'm pulling down 6K a month here. <laughs> this is a sweet gig. Come on. <laughs> Come at me, bro. <laughs> yep. What are you going to do? You're on the literal other side of the world. Yeah, so I'm going to go hide out in Baja, California now or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, California is a bit of a weird way over from there. Wouldn't you have to go around uh, South America to get to that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they never think to look for you there. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a ways. You're in the completely <laughs> wrong ocean. <laughs> Anyway, are I've asked me, babies. Okay, yeah. Now we're just let's just go watch the ice pirates, and continue <laughs> instead of this. It's fine. It's good. <laughs> First pirate themed sci fi thing that popped into my head. Treasure planet, mm. I guess. There we go. That could work too. Uh, 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 there, there is that one uh, up, up, uh, two-parter uh, later in the uh, TNG era where there's technically some pirates. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> the yeah. Um, gambit. Yes, uh, in that one, Picard dies officially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's, that's enough. Spoilers. People didn't come here to listen to... Uh, uh, people probably did come here to listen to us be stupid because I don't think we're bringing much else to the table at this point. But... <laughs> Whee! <laughs> no, the Enterprise is responding to a disturbance near the neutral zone. Um, there's no reports of ships in that area, so they could be arriving to find anything, though it's probably a ship, one would imagine. Yeah. 
Although, the, you know, the neutral zone is also ground zero for like a third of the anomalies. So, you know. Yeah, maybe that's why it's the neutral zone. It's like no one wants to live here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, apparently we've noticed that there's a, bear, uh, a, a ter- bit of territory between the Romulans and the Federation that no one just generally wants to like live in. Maybe we could just like turn that into a neutral zone. How about that? Well, why don't they want to live there? Because it's really spooky. <laughs> so what they find when they get there is evidence of a battle and a disabled Talarian transport. They find intermittent life signs aboard because they're too close to the engines to read what's happening. They're near some radiation or something. Yeah, uh, plot radiation to prevent you from beaming in or detecting what's up. Yeah, radiation seems to mess with all their all of their shit. Yes, uh, except when it doesn't. (laughs) So send an away team on board with Riker, Jordy, and Data. They also try out the new toy, the Visual Acuity Transmitter, um, which is a thingy that connects Jordy's visor to the view screen. Yeah, this actually seems like a fun uh, uh, sort of toy to have, uh, you uh, you know, allow people on the bridge to sort of keep tabs of what's going on. Uh, in away teams and all sorts of that. Sure, you have to deal with the false color uh, uh, stuff there, but whatever. Once you get kind of used to it, it's like, all right. Yeah, they could do something interesting. So they they turn on the VAT thing, um, which sends a POV shot to the bridge, which is just visual noise. Yes. (laughs) All right, so there's some blobs here. Uh, That kind of looks like a wall, and, and I don't know what that is, but it could be Riker. It could yeah. be, you know, a salt monster. You never know. <laughs> they spend a long time talking about this. They even have some stuff that creates plot problems later, which is why they never talk about this again. <laughs> he looks at he looks at Data and goes like, "Who's that?" It's like, "That's Data." It's like, but he has a weird aura around him at all times. It's like, well, yeah, he's a robot. What do you want? <laughs> this is going to be important for later. Actually, no, it's not. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Though, though I will argue that uh, maybe some of the other stuff that makes uh, other androids like undetectable maybe doesn't makes them also undetectable to Jordy, or alternatively, Jordy starts seeing that weird aura around other random people, and it's like, well, they're, they don't, I don't think they're an android. Maybe it's just some people have that, you know? Hmm. But he's actually just surrounded by androids. Maybe he's just a privacy advocate. It's like if they don't want to <laughs> say they're an android, you know, it's not on me. Oh, <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah. So they spend so long talking about it. There's even like, this is like the sparkly music. They beam over to what is obviously a nearly broken down ship. With like <laughs> steam, bits of crop everywhere. Like the whole thing's falling apart. They play that Star Trek sparkly look at the wonder music because we're looking through Jordy's <laughs> visor. <laughs> this is amazing. It's like I can see all sorts of stuff like the ship falling apart right around you guys. Yeah. Wowzers. I can see colors the like of which humanity has never seen. <laughs> Picard, uh, uh, you know, maybe you should just get some LSD. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually Riker has to remind them that they are in fact on a boat that's about to explode. So it's like, oh, maybe we oh, should get on point. with stuff. <laughs> Hopefully this uh, farting around hasn't, uh, you know, uh, given us a ticking clock that's going to almost get everyone killed. Uh, Jordy finds a microfixture in the hull, which gives them about five minutes before the ship explodes. Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't <laughs> spend our clock. ten minutes futzing around with the visor thingy. <laughs> 
they had engineering where the engine's getting off too much heat and radiation, so Data has to go ahead because, you know, he's an android. Uh, mm. It's barely worth mentioning all of that because it takes him about 10 seconds to go and then ask Jordy and Riker to join him. I have navigated away through the radiation and uh, fog cloud here. Mm-hmm. They force open a stuck door and find three Klingons, one of whom is um, knocked out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so really, uh, uh, two Klingons and a load. The Klingons insist on carrying their companion as they all run. The shit's about to explode. They need to get away from engineering to transport out because, you know, plot radiation. And mm-hmm. then they get to a blocked hallway. The transport is not working until the last second when it does. And then the ship explodes. Now, uh, imagine if this was how all of them died. Just like near the end of the first season, a bunch of the, uh, you know, the main cast dies uh, trying to uh, save some random Klingons. Yeah, I mean, don't give them ideas. That's going to be like, <laughs> that's what they do in modern TV. Just like, oh my God, shock <laughs> factor. You didn't think we'd kill off a character in a dumb way, did you? We're not going <laughs> to well, do that until later. <laughs> So once on board, they take the Klingons into sick bay. Picard goes to meet them. Worf asks to join because Klingons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't get to hang out with Klingons that often, you know? Yeah. The Klingons, who are Chorus and Conmel, are obviously surprised to see Worf, but don't really mention it yet. Picard questions them as to what they're doing on the freighter. Uh, Chorus tells them that they were passengers, and when they were aboard, they were attacked by Ferengi. But <gasps> the Ferengi were using Klingon weapons for some reason. Don't look into that too much. Uh, Wait. That's why they didn't read any Ferengi weapons. You know, hmm. normal stuff. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's, uh, wait, have the Ferengi have taken up a a, a, a practice of of uh, conning uh, other people into like giving them uh, hardware and things like that, and slowly replacing all the systems in their ships? So it's like a weird mishmash of all sorts of other different species tech. I mean, that if if they had done. The thing that they were thinking of with the Ferengi, the like, this is the anti-Federation. Mm-hmm. That would have been an interesting thing to do. It's like, these are raiders, scavengers, entrepreneurial people. This like, they're going to scam anyone they can, steal anything they can, do anything they can to get an amalgamation of technology and things instead of the Federation's cooperation. And that mm-hmm. makes them about as powerful because they, you know, have a Romulan freighter that they've outfitted with federation shields and klingon weapons yeah yeah so it's unpredictable because you don't know how all these things are going to work in a tactical situation you know so it could be potentially highly dangerous and then it's impossible to track them down because you're like well this is a you know romulan warp signature that doesn't make any sense yeah (laughs) but no they just made them the ferengi the weird ultra capitalist goblins and they they use this actual good idea for the packlids yeah I don't know, they also don't know what to do with. <laughs> Just, I, I think that's kind of why they use them in Lower Decks other than for the obvious joke. It's like, what do you even do with a species like this? Uh, we'll make them a running joke and we'll maybe figure out some way to give them subtlety later. Except I like, I don't know, I liked, that they, I liked the Packlids in Lower Decks, but the whole thing with them is that they were way smarter than they sound like to humans. Like they have weird, yes. they have a weird language that makes them sound dumb to us. And that's why everyone's mm-hmm. constantly underestimating them. In Lower Decks, yes. they're just stupid. Yes. So anyway, the Klingons say that they asked to take control of the freighter when the Ferengi attacked. They lured the Ferengi into lowering their shields and then destroyed them when they tried to bring aboard a boarding party. So, hmm. yeah. 
Everyone can cool. tell this makes no sense at all, but yeah. Chorus avoids <laughs> questions by saying he needs to rest. So I'm tired. I, my great Klingon warrior-ness has been uh, spent for today. I'm, I'm out, guys. Bye. So Worf shows the Klingons to their quarters while Dr. Crusher operates on the injured Klingon. Chorus and Conmel make food as soon as they get there and sit down with Worf to insult him, mostly to see if they can get him angry. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a Klingon thing, I suppose. <laughs> They're surprised to see a Klingon in Starfleet because Worf's the only Klingon in Starfleet, as far as anyone's aware, which they mm -hmm. should know. They keep saying, yeah. like, as far as I'm aware, it's like, don't, you have records. <laughs> You're in the military. They, this is, they, they write down when you sneeze. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, this is the future, so you could also, like, set up notifications, like, if any other Klingons joins up, give me an email. Okay. <laughs> so they are interrupted by Picard, informing them that their comrade in sickbay is dying. The two Klingons in Worf arrive. They look into the dying man's eyes and then begin to scream into the sky. You know, as you do. When it's over, they say that the body isn't important. It's just an empty shell. You may dispose of it. Get rid of this thing. Yeah, just uh, you know, put it back in the, uh, the, the the replicators and recycle it. There we go. And the whole thing apparently is just like they need to. They're warning the afterlife that a Klingon warrior is on their way. Stovo cores getting another guy. It's kind of badass. I like it. After Conmel laments that their companion was not killed by an enemy, leading Worf to ask what happened because you told me you were fighting an enemy. So. Oh, uh, yeah. The, we were we had a deal with the Fringy. Uh, you're not going to buy that, are you? Yeah. <laughs> but they <laughs> say, we will tell you what's really going on if you tell us your backstory. Haha. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> this is such a like. This is like a D. This is an awkward D and D group. And it's like, oh, what's going on here? It's like, well, I will tell you if you reveal your dark past that you wrote four pages of. <laughs> well, says I as I pull out my four pages. <laughs> so as it turns it out, Worf was the only survivor of an attack on a Klingon outpost at Kittimer. As a child, he was found by a Federation officer who took him into his home on a farming colony to be raised among humans. He has a foster brother who jo also joined Starfleet. Uh, Worf thrived in Starfleet, but the brother dropped out and went home. Uh, this, If he swore revenge on the Romulans, this is a classic. Sick yes. My parents were killed. <laughs> I was raised in a farming village where I practiced every day so I could one day take revenge on the people who killed my family. <laughs> I practiced the blade. Which one? Uh, we'll we'll uh, decide that later. <laughs> well, th well, this this does establish that Worf has a half brother, so that will be important for an episode randomly later. Way later. Yeah. <laughs> so Chorus sympathizes because Worf's a warrior and living amongst prey, as he calls humans. Oh, well, I do prey. Oh, you mean like prey? Oh, oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> he must feel the urge to run, hunt, and fight, but has to control the core of his being to fit in with humans, and despite this, has thrived. I have mastered myself. You guys should learn some of that. Yeah. <laughs> this is what, to Chorus, they are fighting against. An alliance with the Federation has made them all weak, and peace is slowly killing them and eating away at who they are as Klingons. And they took the freighter and the crew to go do their own thing on their own planet where they could live however they wanted. Hmm. Just blackjack and hookers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, so, so let me get this straight. They wanted to 
you know, basically restart the quote old ways of the Klingons, where they just go around and fight people and conquer stuff, and you're you're just going to assume everyone's going to be okay with this if you just sort of leave. Got yeah. it. Okay. So a Klingon cruiser was sent after them, and they had to destroy it. They're Klingon brothers, you know. But it was a battle, so it's fine, right? Because they're Klingon. Yeah. Yeah, dying glorious battle, it's fine. War starts showing them around the ship, even after finding out that they are very literal treasonous traitor people. Yeah, so uh, interesting. Uh, they start talking <laughs> yes. about all the battles they could have with this awesome, awesome, awesome Federation ship. Yeah, this place, this place is pretty swanky. You know, the, the Federation might be weak babies, but, you know, they got some cool toys that can totally, like level a planet if you like so on the bridge they're all talking about how they saw the klingon death ritual and how they're the first non-klingons to see such things and apparently we know about it even though no one's seen it outside of the klingon empire somehow well well no no one's seen it outside the klingon empire on an episode of star trek yet (laughs) (laughs) they just forget to mention that last bit but they now detect a approaching Klingon battlecruiser. They're hailed by a Captain Chorus, who tells them that the two Klingons they have on board are wanted fugitives. Well, dang. Like, hmm. you know, Worf knows. <laughs> yeah, and Worf's like, yeah, they're, they're totally like criminals or something like that. Whatever. So Tasha takes the security team down to where Worf, Chorus, and Con Mel are wandering around the ship. Um... Chorus tries to convince Worf to join them and take the ship. He mostly just stands there, looking between Tasha and Chorus, just waiting around. It's like, um, you, you want me to do something? Um, I'm not chief security yet. What? <laughs> then a family comes out of the turbo lift and like, oh no, Chorus has grabbed a kid. And Tasha freaks out until he hands the girl to Worf and surrenders. And Worf goes, why were you worried? Klingons do not take hostages like cowards. Oh, all right. Well, uh, I'll have to remember this for later. Also, I think I wrote this down wrong. The captain on the freighter is named Kanira, uh, not Chorus. Chorus is this dude. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm getting my names yeah. mixed up. Yeah, the, the weird name that we can't pronounce. Kanira. It's got an apostrophe in it. So English doesn't have apostrophe words like this. So. And uh, you know, the con lines that I've uh, created uh, have a certain rule to them. That's not this. <laughs> <laughs> so back on the bridge, they let Kanira know they've captured fugitives. Uh, Worf asks to address the captain and pleads that the two Klingons not be executed, but be let free on a hostile world where they can at least die with weapons in their hands. Well, that does sound like a bit more badass death. Um, well, maybe I'll have to think about it. Uh, nah. Yeah, Kanara sympathizes, but he longs for a time before peace as well, etc. But his hands are tied because bureaucracy. And he's like, my honor is that I'm going to serve honorably, and that means I'm going to follow the orders. So, you know, hand him over. In the brig, Chorus and Conmel take apart a lot of pieces of their armor and some belts and things and make a weapon. And uh, yeah, it should be noted that one of the pieces they uh, you know sort of quietly grabbed uh, from their friend who died was uh, apparently part of all this too. Yeah. So between the three of them, they can make a functional disruptor. With well, that's kind of clever. Hmm, yeah, they're kind of sneaky, aren't they? Maybe they're the rogues. They also have some sort of other doodah that disables the force field, and they shoot their way out. Security officer 
kills Con Mel before being shot, leaving Chorus to run to engineering. Well, uh, seems we have ourselves a casualty. Uh, that sucks. Um, moving on. <laughs> yeah. This is another one of those things where, like, the force fields look cool in Futury. Um, a door would have saved you a lot of trouble here. Yes. <laughs> Oh no, the Klingons are still behind the door. Okay, um, it's locked, right? Yeah, they're, they're trying to shoot their way out, but we can kind of see the beam heating up the door. Should we call somebody? <laughs> so, Cars goes to engineering and holds the warp core hostage because he could shoot it at short range and destroy the ship. Mm. Well, this seems like a major design flaw when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, it seems like maybe you should have some shielding or something around this. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, in the uh, in DS9, the Defiant actually has a shield around its warp core. Uh, part of that's to prevent the radiation from killing everyone, but, you know. <laughs> so, he demands to talk to Worf, because he's the only one on the ship who he thinks will understand him. He asks Worf to take him to the battle bridge so they can take the drive section of the ship and cut bloody war across the galaxy. Hmm, well, that does sound like fun, but that would require, you know, breaking out the battle bridge set again. So we can't do that today. Yeah, Worf refuses. Korf goes, oh, there is no Klingon in you. And Worf goes, yeah, maybe, and shoots him. <laughs> Worf's just like, oh, I don't really care what you have to think anymore. I'm gonna, you're going to be dead in a second. Zap. <laughs> he falls into a glass floor, which breaks in dramatic mm -hmm. fashion. People are meant to walk on that. Yes. <laughs> So uh, maybe this is a good thing because, you know, it shows a, a structural flaw in the flooring here. Yeah, engineering is just one safety hazard after another. That's going to be true for quite a while. So Worf does the death thing, screams to the heavens, etc. They call Kanra, Kanira, whatever his name is. They call Apostle <laughs> to let him know that the fugitives have died. He asks how they died, and Worf tells him that they died well. Oh, okay, then, then I don't have to worry about this. Uh, just toss their bodies out the airlock uh, later. Yep, that's it. There we go. Yep. <laughs> End of episode. Yeah. All right, so that's Heart of Glory, the Klingon episode. Yeah. What'd you think? Um, I generally kind of enjoy it, uh, though it does really drag that first half. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like okay, cool that we're seeing the uh, the Jordy's visor stuff here, but we're spending so much time on it that is basically just wow! Look at the special effect we did. Yeah, by the time they get to the ship, describe the ship, describe Jordy Vision, do Jordy Vision, and all go ooh and ah at Jordy Vision. You're about twenty mm -hmm. minutes into the episode. Yes. <laughs> like well uh i hope that we're gonna have room for you know a plot <laughs> and you know somehow we kind of do it's a pretty simple plot but it's there yeah the plot's a bit simple it's a it's a fun character study mm -hmm. i feel like of of all the things that star trek looks at um the klingons are kind of this weird little thing it's trying to introduce a culture that americans don't have and explore a culture mm -hmm. that Americans don't have and is probably fictional in any regard d for any culture. Yeah. Uh, even though we try to assign it to various cultures throughout history. Uh, it, it is uh, an attempt to be something fairly removed from the human experience. 
uh, though there are obvious elements taken from bits and here and there, uh, as well as, you know, stuff that's been sort of inherited from the original series. But one of the things that you inevitably hit up on when you're writing about this kind of, you know, let's just say violent culture, is uh, they wind up having an interesting discussion about American masculinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they they have a very interesting debate going between Chorus and Worf about the purpose of a warrior, which is like, what is the purpose of anger and violence in the modern world where it's arguably no longer necessary? Now, I'm going to say that when you're talking about masculinity and patriarchal expression, which are two separate things, like patriarchy and masculinity are linked, but they are not the same thing, and they too will often get yes. treated like the same thing. One is a system of control and organization that's been put on things. One's a preferred gender expression, and they're mm -hmm. deeply intertwined, but they are not the same. So an external versus internal sort of, uh, you know, structure here. Well, one's a system, and the other one is a personal expression. Yes. Yes. Though they do, you know, inform each other. Yes. So fictionally, masculinity is very linked with violence. Like, this is not historically accurate or biologically accurate at all but the idea is that men are more violent and historically that has been used to you know wage wars protect communities hunt etc etc and that's deeply tied in with an american version of the masculine ideal you got to be strong so you can defend your country or home or whatever here and if you don't got that you're not man enough or something yes and that's completely fictional but it's very tied into our ideas Mm -hmm. uh, the the debate that they're setting up here is what is the purpose of that kind of masculine violence in a modern world that arguably does not require violence to function anymore? Yeah, when you uh, have a you know, built you, you've built a society, even the Klingon society at this point, where you have enough to go around, so there's not a, you know a you know scarcity of resources uh, that demands this to be a thing, but it's still part of your culture. What gifts? <laughs> so, Chorus is arguing that one should be fully allowed to express it. That hurting people is just part of their culture and world. One should be able to just engage with it however they want. And the problem is the people who want to change things and make peace, etc., etc. Chorus in this example is the conservative voice that's saying we shouldn't change anything. Stuff was fine the way it was, and the fact that people are trying to change things is hurting yes, me. Uh, I'd go even a little further and say not just conservative, but like traditionalist, that you know things have changed and they want to change them back. Uh, so it's not necessarily conserving something that is presently uh, you know the status quo, but is sort of reverting to a previous state. Worf is representing a different ideology, not necessarily progressive or wanting to change things, but arguing that one can still find a useful expression of the masculine by exhibiting control over the self. Mm -hmm. like you can find an expression of your own personal honor by trying to better yourself regardless of your personal feelings about everything else that's going on. Yeah, in some ways, you know, your biggest enemy is not, you know, the person on the horizon there. It is your own inner demons or impulses or whatever you want to sort of, uh, you know, uh, set as your sort of internal uh, uh, antagonist there. 
Uh, and so if you can overcome that to be the person that you want to be, you know, you know, that isn't necessarily just, you know, giving into that side of you, then that is a worthy victory. Yeah, there's a there's a quote in here from Worf that's essentially your true test as a warrior is not external, but internal, mm-hmm. meaning it's not going out and fighting other people. It's being able to put your own self in order. Indeed. Uh, no, I have heard a uh, quite a bit about you know uh, you know various forms of Klingon art uh, honor, and this kind of I guess demonstrates the external versus internal sort of uh, division there. That you know, Worf is very much all of the internal honor sort of stuff there, while these guys uh, they're you know showing up here are more of the external. That the only honor that really matters is the what you can demonstrate to others. What you sort of view internally doesn't matter. While Worf's kind of the opposite there that you know what's going on outside doesn't necessarily you know matter super much you know if you don't have that sort of uh internal uh, consistency for yourself well it's something that we kind of hold in very high regard in our own culture um arguably damaging to various degrees depending on how it's implemented but one of the things that we consider to be very important in modern american masculinity is this sort of confidence in the self Mm -hmm. and even though we we do not apply it particularly it's something that we say is good it's not something that we um try to instill in interestingly (laughs) but that's kind of this this thing the one is very much external validation like uh chorus's entire thing is we need to go wage bloody war being externally validated by fighting people other people being afraid of us people seeing us do glorious things Mm -hmm. where Worf's philosophy is internal validation i know that i am doing the best that i can i know that i am holding myself to a higher standard than others might and that is what is important to me mm-hmm. which you know given their their different uh upbringings uh you know sort of becomes the inevitable uh you know conclusion there just term terms of how wharf was you know likely going to sort of you know turn out in the end here um you know as someone who has you know not much direct uh contact with the klingon culture at this point but has effectively learned plenty uh you know he's having you know that he was never really in a position to get that external validation in the first place so what else does he got well he still wants to be an honorable klingon so i'll judge myself from my own set of standards here well it's kind of an interesting one to look at in a modern thing i don't know if you've heard of this have you heard that there's a masculinity crisis that we're having apparently oh What's this all about? <laughs> so we're having, I, I don't know, both sides, like everyone's talking about this. Both sides of the debate are talking about it from various angles. Um, but there's apparently a masculinity crisis, which is essentially, um, what do we do with the men now that we agree men are horrible? Well, uh, now, now is this the masculinity crisis uh, that the, the, the more recent start or the one from the, the 50s or the one from the <laughs> 1910s? Or going back to even the 1800s, I think I've seen articles about, you know, men today are, you know, need to be stronger or something like that. Well, this, <laughs> this, this is the flavors here. We have, we have one thing that's like, oh, men are all weaklings and need to be stronger and whatever, whatever. But there's also a more uh, nuanced discussion, um, especially mm-hmm. in some feminist circles happening, which is 
patriarchy is instilling certain ideals in everyone that make us think of men and masculinity in a certain way. That way mm -hmm. is in many ways inherently damaging to all people, yes. men and women and others. Like, it, it is an inherently damaging way to exist. It's, in, you know, it's encouraging folks to basically uh, harm themselves and everyone around them. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff of encouraging violent behavior, encouraging the devaluing of emotions, um, a lot of stoicism, which good or bad, depending on how used. And mm -hmm. there's a bit of a debate in like how you reintegrate any of that. Like we, we have this whole like feminist idea in some in some feminist uh, theory that men and masculinity are essentially a problem that we need to deal with but that doesn't leave men with a lot of options being men you know yeah you know, there's uh, you know it's like well what if we redefine what masculinity is so it's not you know nearly as ridiculous yeah. as uh, you know it has been but the thing that we wind up with is we tend to have this giant list which i do not disagree with broadly that there's a lot of ways in which masculinity is being manipulated and instilled in people in a very negative way. But when you just wind up with a giant list of stuff that's not good, and you don't have anything to replace it with, you do wind up in a bit of a problem. If you tell someone the way you're living is bad, stop it, um, and they go, okay, how should I live? And it's like, I don't know, just not like that. Yeah, it's not super helpful. Uh, <laughs> you know, having... You know, it, there is, a, I guess, a, a general yes and, you know, sort of thing that's been, you know, that we've been kind of lacking here. Uh, and so I guess one of my favorite go-tos is like, be more like Mr. Rogers or, uh, <laughs> well, it's like, you know, he was, he was a guy and, you know, no one, you know, you know he has sort of exuded a certain uh, masculinity, but he was also quite spoken and just like, let's do some cool stuff for the kids here. I think that as a more traditional look at modern american masculinity Worf is a very very interesting person to examine as a character mm -hmm. because he embodies a lot of it he's very strong he recognizes violence as a key tool he is absurdly obsessed with honor and stoicism and a lot of other things but mm -hmm. he embodies it in a way that works very very well both for him and for those that he interacts with until you get to DS9 where they just ruin the character outright. But in TNG, he is he recognizes that violence is a useful tool that is intrinsic to his being, but he also does not employ it randomly. He uses it when necessary and he can like can employ it when necessary in a very controlled way even though he enjoys it. Yeah, it's almost like Wisdom is something that he is, you know, incorporated into his masculine ideal. Yeah, and he has a certain controlled nature about him. He is a very stoic person, generally. But you also reveal through other interactions, later on, he has an incredible emotional depth that he cultivates mm -hmm. for himself. He, he just doesn't necessarily find it necessary to use that at all times he is doing a job that requires him to separate his feelings out a little bit because he's working in the military in a security role most of the time yeah so he doesn't always bring his feelings into things but he has an incredible depth of feeling like deep 
feeling and es and emotional exploration are very core to his being. He's incredibly emotional. He's incredibly spiritual. It just is not mm -hmm. something that he brings into a lot of his interactions with people because it doesn't really matter externally. You know, uh, you know once again, he he's kind of grown up in this sort of uh, way of being. Uh, and so, you know, it doesn't mean he doesn't have it. It just makes it harder to see for those folks around him that are not keyed into the uh, sort of uh, you know way of, that he operates until they've gotten to know him quite a bit. And we, as the viewers, get to know him quite a bit over the course of the series. Yeah, and he takes a certain amount of pride and pleasure and even like, for, like a certain matter of professional sensibility from being able to explore himself and his culture and his spiritual beliefs and emotions in that kind of way. So overall, he embodies a lot of what people would think of as very, very negative masculine traits. He's huge, he's violent, he's strong, but he also has a lot of things that we really, really value in people in general, like an incredible depth of emotion, caring and empathy and spiritual feeling. I guess uh, he's a, a good role model. And, you know, if you, you know, have sort of, I guess, internalized yourself as being this sort of, uh, you know, large, powerful, uh, and prone to violence sort of character that there is, I guess, a way forward for you, even if you still sort of have that as part of your, uh, you know, views of yourself. Then. Well, I think that's the thing. See, even when you, when we talk about it that way, one of the other parts of his character, I think is also a really interesting exploration of how we're, is how we have this sort of feminist masculinity crisis that we're trying to deal with now. Like he was raised in a way where he knew his entire life that his presence was a danger to other people. Mm -hmm. Like they have a thing later on where he knows that he is, he is stronger than most humans just generally. Yes. So he has to control himself all the time or he's going to hurt people. And that mm -hmm. is something that okay. we now raise a lot of young men with the idea of because, you know, feminism, earlier feminism in like, you know, the, the, 60s and 70s um, when we were coming up with some of these ideas we had a certain view of we had a certain view of patriarchal culture that wasn't being particularly challenged that's where a lot of like radical feminism came in saying like we need to challenge these patriarchal ideas because no one is but anyone who was born after that has been raised in a culture in which these ideas have become if not completely mainstream, at least a lot more accepted. Yes. So a lot of young men who grew up after the like after the seventies, people who grew up in like the mid eighties and nineties, grew up with the idea with like being instilled with some of these ideas of patriarchy and the idea that you as a man could instill violence and harm on other people. Yeah, there's a a reason I sometimes mention to folks that you know you know it's like all right, so we've been interacting a lot online. I just sort of you know. You know, you know, when I talk about this sort of interaction about in, you know, in my real life sort of spaces here, I want you to also recognize that I kind of come off as a big scary guy just when I'm walking down the sidewalk. And that, I, you know, I've become aware that that's, you know, in sort of impacts, uh, you know, random people's uh, sort of uh, first impressions of me. Uh, if I'm, you know, come into a room, uh, and, you know, you know, and I don't know anyone there, but I'm supposed to interact with them also a similar sort of thing. And so recognizing how I sort of have this impact on folks, 
you know, you know, sort of informs my own behavior and how I sort of, you know, uh, uh, move forward and interact with them. Um, you know, also it kind of helps that personality wise, I tend to be chill. So, uh, so that does definitely sort of, uh, help, I guess, uh, reduce people's stress if I'm in the, you know, a, a social situation like that. I do think that like the idea that you have with that, like I'm also a very large man and I also had a lot of temper control problems when I was in high school. Like in middle school and high school, I was fighting with people a lot. I had anger control issues. So I've also been raised in that kind of way of like, what you're doing is fairly dangerous to people and you are a large person who makes people nervous. Um, yeah. it's, I, I tended to seethe more. It's very, it's a very damaging internal idea to if you, if you have to internalize the knowledge that you as you exist as a person are inherently dangerous anyone can do harm to anyone it's just being a person it's just being human yes uh having separated that out to you specifically can do a lot of harm and you specifically need to deal with that where other people might not that becomes an issue and mm -hmm. i think that the way that they've dealt with that in the character of Worf is very interesting because i mean this one gets into a little bit of weirdness when you're dealing with things like aliens and stuff he literally is stronger than other people so yes. there is that he could be more dangerous than others but humans can hurt each other if you don't control your emotions too like especially when you're younger and you have more trouble controlling your emotions yeah uh, you know in fact uh you know one of my i guess most potent memories was uh the one time i uh uh managed to impact a uh, a fellow's uh, nose on a on the school bus that one time uh my senior year of high school um i i hadn't been in any fights for you know a number of years at that point so it was a little surprising to everyone including myself and it's sort of like well i guess i need to remember this because <laughs> wow uh just sort of uh you know just a quick movement and that's all it took for him to basically be done <laughs> mm -hmm. i think that you wind up with things like that like People realize, like, that at some point you may realize how scary violence is, and you could internalize that as like, oh, well, I have this capacity to do such horrible things. Um, and that can lead people to this idea that violence in and of itself is just such an inherent wrong. But there's a debate there. Like, it's a philosophical concept that you can debate. I'm not trying to lay down a specific version of it. But <laughs> you could say in a character like Worf, you need to control yourself. You are stronger than others. You have emo like you could have trouble controlling your emotions. You could hurt people. Violence is always bad. But instead of that, you've taken this character and you've gone, yes, he can be violent. He comes from a culture, in fact, that reveres violence as an idea, but not random violence. He has incorporated his capacity to do violence into a tool that he can use when he wants to. And as a tool, it can be incredibly useful in certain situations. And he uses that to protect other people, to, to protect the values that he believes in, in his own society. And that's something that violence is used for fairly frequently. And Indeed. saying that all violence is inherently wrong and all men are inherently violent and therefore has the capacity for this great harm and wrong is not letting us actually explore this idea like what is it for is it useful how can it be a useful thing as a tool that one can employ how can you view it differently than just as a flat-out evil action 
you know, uh, though it's you know not one to one. Going back to my ease of in, uh, intimidating people, uh, you know, I have used that as a tool to help uh, you know uh, friends of mine uh, stay out of trouble themselves. Uh, that it's like, oh, I need to go to uh, you know the situation here, and I don't know if people are going to be you know antsy and potentially you know trying to you know push me around because I'm there. Would you? you know, you know, come with me and sort of be the, you know, this, this person has a friend here. They're not looking, you know, they're not obviously not looking for a fight. So don't bring it to them sort of situation instead. Um, you know, it's just sort of being there, being that presence there that that's, you know, not necessarily a direct threat, but a, you know, assumed threat, I suppose you could say uh, that, you know, this person here is, you know, not necessarily, you know, you know, is, you know, looks capable. So me as this, you know, external person am going to, you know, respond so that, you know, we're not going to be actually be starting anything this time that can be potentially useful. And it is uh, a weird thing when it comes up. Hope that made sense. <laughs> I mean that, and that it's interesting because in certain theories of interaction, um, I'm not saying all feminism is a very complicated jumble of theories. But in certain theories, that form of intimidation is inherently violent, is a way that you were raised in a patriarchal system to embrace violence, and is therefore a negative thing to do, even though just being a large guy in a certain situation can de-escalate violence otherwise. Indeed. So instead of there maybe being violence and my friend being hurt, nothing happens. I'd say nothing happening as the alternative is a good thing. Yeah, it's a particularly complicated subject. Yes. But I do think that Worf is viewed as a masculine ideal is a very interesting concept because he's not randomly violent. He's not evil. He doesn't have a lot of these other traits that we would talk about when you look at a, you know, masculine character. And especially since he became so popular, he's like the... I mean, I, he's obviously drawing inspiration from older works, but he is the, like, archetypical alien, stoic, masculine character. Like, you can draw a direct line from him to, like, Tilk on Stargate, and mm -hmm. um, I, I'm forgetting my character names. There's a similar character on Farscape, and there was a similar character on Andromeda. Like, they all, every sci-fi property after this has your big guy philosopher yeah i believe a, a tear on uh uh andromeda um on farscape uh guy with the blade yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's also a gun it's like a gun blade <laughs> it's taken your idea of you're like this is from this is a trope concept of the heavy the big strong guy who can take care of situations through strength you also pair him with the philosopher and you wind up with a very interesting character who can not only do violence but examine the reasons that they would do violence indeed is it better to strike now or to strike never that is the sandwich wait wrong heavy <laughs> <laughs> all right that's more yeah, time uh, than i meant to spend on that so yeah. <laughs> well yeah you know, i'd say it's uh time well spent uh overall uh you know uh I guess uh, what I was going to bring to it is kind of this, you know a little bit of stories I've uh, shared myself here uh, that you know you know there are multiple different ways to sort of 
you know, interrogate your own masculinity and try to turn it into something that's going to be useful for yourself and, uh, the, you know, and that is going to be uh, going to help those around you, you know, not, not, not bring them down or threaten them or, uh, you know, cause problems and things like that. So I guess in terms of uh, moving forward, you know, we all kind of have our own uh, journeys uh, on this sort of uh, uh, quest of self-understanding and, you know, questioning our own behaviors. Um, but yeah, it's uh, maybe a conversation that uh, long running we should maybe uh, you know come back to occasionally. Oh, we will. Worth shows up a lot in these seasons. You know, he's one yes. of the main characters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, how, how how is it you know that we can learn to be better people, better guys uh, in by looking at Worf? Well, how? <laughs> 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 know that you can rip someone's spine out but have the knowledge to know when you should rip someone's spine out yes uh well, like uh you know just you know randomly when you're going uh in the elevator and uh Riker's being kind of a boob that's maybe not the time to do it uh if you're uh, performing spinal surgery that might be a good time to do it actually uh, but uh, those are two different episodes we'll later in, uh, <laughs> look at <laughs> And one of them was involved Kern, Worf's brother. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, the uh, little bit of trivia here I wanted to just kind of mention uh, the uh, the Klingon cruiser that showed up. Uh, the uh, the graphics there. Guess where that's from? Oh, I know where that's from, but I'm not going to spoil it. So it's no, it's more oh. fun if I don't know where did that, where could that have been from? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, where have. Uh, before this point, Klingons shown up and then promptly gotten murdered by, uh, you know, some sort of computer brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they cut it before Vidra shows up and blows them out of yes. the sky. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, uh, good luck there, guys. Uh, stay away from giant clouds. Yeah, it's very, like, we talked about this a bit during the movie episodes, but the the timeline is so confusing if you came to Star Trek a little bit later. Mm. Like, I was too young to know when I was watching these at the time, but like the crossover between when they were making next generation, when they were making all of the movies means that the special effects are the same. They share some of the same sets. They reuse footage. Yep. It's, it's a hot mess. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, the, uh, other bit of trivia I wanted to mention, uh, that, uh, some of the, uh, uh, wall, uh, structures and things like that from the freighter, uh, ended up being reused, but on Babylon five. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, I guess uh, when we uh, ten thousand years from now, when we get to Babylon Five, uh, watch out for that. And that's all I got. <laughs> okay, that's all that we had for general talking points. So I guess probably it's time to point at something else. It's time to get to the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show, where our various contestants have gotten a lot of uh, points racked up here. And holy smokes, uh, these Klingons really know how to uh, boost their scores this week. <laughs> so let's start handing out surprises, and uh, get one. I hope you're ready for these. The first prize to hand out is the Awkward Cover Story Prize, which goes to the visiting Klingons. Because seriously, the Ferengi, they did this? Come on guys, give us a break. Now tell us what actually happened. What do they win, Gepwin? Klingons win 
a Klingon time crystal, which we know they have later, so they can go back in time, like six or seven episodes, to before we saw how pathetic and stupid the Ferengi actually are, back when they were still trying to build them up as villains. Because this, then it would have been like, oh, the Ferengi did this. Oh, the mysterious Ferengi. Who even knows? That's why their weapon signatures are weird. Instead of really those the little jumpy goblin dudes, they yeah them, really yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> reorder the episodes and uh, bam, yeah, suddenly the Fringi are a major threat, or at least for a little bit longer. <laughs> Our second prize is the get on with it prize, which goes to Picard for slowing down the rescue so that almost everybody on the transport dies just because he likes to look at pretty pretty lights or something like that. Uh, what does Picard win, Gepwin? Picard gets a kaleidoscope. Cause hmm. just just look at that. Here's Geordie Vision's like, oh my god, how do you make sense? Like, yeah, you learn, you know. We'll get on to things though, you know, enjoy. Yeah, it just takes a little patience and you know, uh, spending years sort of experiencing uh, you know, sight like this that you'll eventually figure it out, uh, Picard. Uh would you like a visor too? No? Okay, moving on. <laughs> the uh the final prize is the unsustainable murder cult, which also kinda goes to the traditionalist killingons here, because really you know, they, they want to go and just murder people or stuff forever, I guess. So that's kind of what their interpretation of the old Klingon way kind of equates to at this point here. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? They do get their own stupid little moon. I think this could work for everyone. You take all the traditionalist Klingons, put them on a habitable planet. They fight each other to the death in honorable whatever glory. Everyone's happy. Hmm. Uh, and uh, maybe to, uh, to uh, I guess, maybe make sure, I, I suppose, uh, make that moon praxis. Yeah, just so that they will explode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, on that uh, perhaps a bit more murderous tone, um, uh, that's all I got here for this week, uh, Gepwin. Uh, go on and take us away. <laughs> yes, thank you all for joining us while we talk about super masculine buff Klingons and getting distracted on the galaxy's favorite game show so are, are you flexing now too yeah flex excellent ah, i've been Just keep flexing i've been lifting more one of my friends gave me a weight set because he upgraded now i've been lifting so i have actual muscles this is one of the first times i've had actual real muscles in quite a while Excellent. Uh, I think the last time I had like visible muscles, uh, I was like biking two miles a day. That was that was pretty weird. Also, there's radiation. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> now you. Turn I'm not into joking. Actually, Incredible Hulk. <laughs> uh, I, I was uh, spending a summer at a uh, national uh, lab, so you know. <laughs> After a lab experiment, now when he gets angry, he goes through an incredible transformation. And it becomes physics is <laughs> Right, so next time we have what is one of my favorite episodes of the first season. Not because mm -hmm. it is good, but because it is stupid. <laughs> it's, it's overall kind of fun and has some, uh, you know, kind of weird humorous things going on at times and uh you know including like depression era references you yeah know? it's it's great yeah. it's also got captain geordie which is mm -hmm. one of my favorites they don't let geordie be captain enough yes so it's got captain geordie geordie gets to shout down insubordination it's amazing 
It's like, come on, guy, I'm doing a thing. I'm going to save the day. Now uh, just shut up and let me do my job. And like, okay, I guess I have to do that. Now. It's also a very, very interesting one because it's it's it had a very confusing message for the time that it was put out. The message that they were trying to do for the era was actually kind of confused and didn't really work as a good metaphor. And it has become mm -hmm. a much, much better metaphor the more into the future we have gone. <laughs> like sometimes, uh, you know, sci-fi experiences Z-Rust where you got things that are just like, well, this is, looks, looks kind of quaint and uh, this is not how the future turned out at all, but it kind of has its own style. This is sort of like the inverse. It's not about style, but it's about substance getting better over time. Yeah. It's just amazing. Also, the the thingy in this is made out of like a, a pantyhose egg, which I just <laughs> love. This is like, this is peak science fiction. This is amazing. This is a, this is a pantyhose egg from the drugstore asking questions about weapon automation. It's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so so uh, if uh, folks uh, you know thought the uh, some of the uh, stuff in the uh, the uh, the Doctor Who uh, episode recently was uh, a bit silly, uh, it's got nothing on this one. <laughs> also, sad man, depressed hologram vendor. He just wants to sell his stuff. Weird exobotany that doesn't make any sense. Oh my god, it's got everything. <laughs> it's got all the science fiction. <laughs> and. Uh... Uh, it's 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 a good adventure. Yeah. So uh, make sure to tune in then. All right. So next time we're hitting what's my favorite episode of the first season, personal favorite, called the Arsenal of Freedom. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, wanna buy a death ray? have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcasts, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>